Hey, Cases and Controversies listeners, this is producer David Schultz here. Just a quick note that we recorded this before the news broke about the Supreme Court's leak investigation report. We'll have more on that on a special episode tomorrow, so definitely check in there. Uh, But for now, enjoy this show. Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. The justices wrapped up their January argument sitting this week. One of those cases involves a criminal prosecution by a Turkish-owned bank that the U.S. prosecutors say laundered money in violation of international sanctions against Iran. Here to take a deep dive into that argument is University of Chicago Law Professor Curtis Bradley. But first, the Supreme Court granted eight new sets of cases to be heard this term, from free speech to excessive fines to tribal sovereign immunity. And we wanted to highlight one of them for you, which deals with the rights of religious workers. So, Greg, can you give us a little background on this case? What is it that Gerald Groff wants the Supreme Court to do here? Sure. So Gerald Groff is uh, a postal carrier who says his religious beliefs precluded him from working on Sundays. Now, the main federal job discrimination law requires employers to try to accommodate the religious needs of their workers. But the law also says that employers don't have to endure an undue hardship. And there's a 1977 Supreme Court decision known as Transworld Airlines versus Hardison said that means employers don't have to bear more than a, quote, de minimis cost. And so the appeal by Groff asked the Supreme Court to overturn that ruling and impose a more demanding standard on employers. The appeal also contends that employers can't meet that undue burden standard by pointing to the impact on other employees. And in the Groff case, the Postal Service says Groff missed 24 scheduled Sunday shifts and the burden was falling on other carriers who were having to fill in for him. Right. So, Greg, you wrote about this case when it was granted and you said that religious rights advocates have been asking the justices to decide this issue for a while. Any guesses as to why the court decided this was the case to address it? That's a really good question. So uh, three times in recent years, the court has refused to hear cases that basically ask the same question, overturn TWA versus Hardison. And Justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch have all said, we think the court should take up a case like this, but the other conservatives, Roberts, Barrett, Kavanaugh, haven't. One of them apparently provided the fourth vote. That's why, that's what it takes for the court to grant cert in a case. Um, Why that happened, uh, we can only speculate. Maybe it was that second issue, which was not clearly presented in in the uh, other cases, that issue of whether the burden on other employees is a factor in the analysis. Maybe somebody just changed their mind in the, you know, the, the earlier cases, Justice Barrett had just joined the court. Maybe she wasn't ready to take up this issue. Or maybe because the, the Supreme Court is near a historic low in terms of the cases that were being, <laughs> being argued, they just said, dang it, we need more cases here. And this looks like a good one. I feel like I've heard a podcast on that recently. I'll have to think about which one. Um, no, actually, of course, uh, dedicated listeners will remember that that was the subject of our last podcast, the Supreme Court's historically low number of cases, as well as the fact that we don't have any opinions so far, although that could change pretty rapidly. Uh, but back to the this case. 
The court's new 6-3 conservative majority has not only been taking a lot of these religious rights cases, but has been ruling in favor of really robust religious rights. And this seems like a continuation of that. And I'm just wondering if you see any end in sight or if there's just a plethora of these sort of religious rights cases that are there for the justices to take up. Yeah, well, uh, certainly anytime this court takes up a religious rights case, you, if you're betting money, you bet on the religious rights side. Uh, they, they do tend to win, not always in a huge way. Uh, we've seen the court stop short of overturning precedents in, in at least one area. So, uh, you know, the incremental approach may mean that they need more and more cases. Um, that said, in this case, previously we have seen a lot of constitutional cases. And you know, this is a, about a statute. And mm-hmm. the general view, both on the court and off this, is that it should be harder to overturn a statutory ruling. Stare decisis has more force there because this is an area where Congress can always jump in and change the statute if the Supreme Court got it wrong. Yeah, Congress always does that. They're just ready to act at a moment's notice. <laughs> well, but you know, the Hardison decision <laughs> has been around since 1977, so they've certainly had plenty of time to get their act together and overturn uh, that ruling if the Supreme Court got it wrong. They haven't jumped in. And so one very interesting factor in this case will be the extent to which that argument plays in and causes any hesitation among the justices who might think that the ruling was wrong, uh, but but maybe are hesitant to uh, jump in here when Congress hasn't. All right. So that's probably not going to be the last time we discuss this case on this podcast. Uh, But let's turn now to our discussion of that Hall Bank case, which we previewed at the top. And that was argued earlier this week. Uh, Just a little uh, down and dirty preview of what we're going to be talking about here. A bank owned by the government of Turkey faces criminal charges related to the alleged laundering of at least a billion dollars to the U.S. financial system in violation of sanctions against Iran. The bank says that foreign countries and their instrumentalities, like the bank here, are immune from criminal charges by federal prosecutors and that the Supreme Court should toss the case. So joining us to try to figure out what the justices might do here is University of Chicago law professor Kurt Bradley, who wrote about this case in Lawfare. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I don't know about you, but I found a real mismatch between what the parties briefed in the case and what questions and concern the justices had. So when I was thinking about how to kick off our discussion today, I thought the best way might be for us to jump into what um, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is and maybe ask you to give us a brief description of what the law does and how it comes into play here. So uh, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act is a very kind of detailed, uh, comprehensive statute that Congress passed in 1976. Uh, Before the statute, people sometimes tried to sue foreign sovereigns or their instrumentalities, and those suits were addressed without a statute in place. Uh, It was understood historically that at least foreign states were just absolutely immune from the jurisdiction of another country's courts. That made it relatively easily early in U.S. history. It meant that for the most part, you just couldn't sue foreign states. Um, it became more complicated in the 20th century, particularly as foreign governments started uh, doing more business and having instrumentalities that operated sort of like private corporations. And increasingly, nations decided they shouldn't always get immunity if they're going to act like a private business. And the U.S. eventually came around to that perspective and said, there's not absolute immunity if they're 
really engaging in kind of commercial private activity, but they're certainly still entitled to immunity for more sovereign acts. And the United States government, of course, would like that abroad as well. It doesn't want to be sued uh, lightly in other countries' courts either. This was dealt with kind of by the courts, but I would say with a heavy amount of guidance from the executive branch in cases. Uh, courts would often defer to the executive about whether to give immunity or not immunity to in particular cases. That regime over time was viewed as not a great regime because it meant the executive had to intervene a lot in cases. It was getting lobbied from various places to intervene one way or the other in cases. And so finally, Congress tried to regulate this whole area in this Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, and it broadly gives immunity to foreign states, but then carves out some exceptions to immunity. For example, for certain kinds of commercial actions that states or their instrumentalities would engage in. So how does criminal law fit into all this? So Hawk Bank's lawyer, Lisa Blatt, made a big deal that uh, she said the, the world has been around for 7,000 years and no country has ever tried another country criminally. Is she right about that? And if if she is, is that because the law has prevented that or because you know the, the discretion of the, the president has kept that from happening? That's a great question. It's kind of one of the core questions in the case. Um, it, she is right that historically um, nations did not think it was appropriate to exercise criminal process against other foreign countries. And in fact, the, the United States position even today is that that's uh, entirely out of bounds with respect to foreign governments themselves. Where the question is, is really whether it's off limits to do that with respect to the foreign instrumentalities. In this case, Hulk Bank is a Turkish-owned bank. And the question is whether this historic uh, immunity that makes criminal jurisdiction off limits extends to an instrumentality like that. But, uh, but Lisa Blatt is correct that it, there isn't really a lot of historical precedent for bringing criminal proceedings against even a foreign government-owned instrumentality. There are a handful of instances um, in which the U.S. government has exercised some kind of criminal process, uh, maybe issuing subpoenas, for example, a few times. Uh, a few prosecutions were initiated that where there might have been a waiver of immunity, so it didn't really pose the question squarely about whether you could proceed against them involuntarily. I think this would be the first time where there might be a, an attempt to try a foreign instru government instrumentality. Very unusual. Therefore, of course, the argument is that it may be a violation of international norms to do that. The government's view is that at least with respect to a foreign government corporation, a norm should allow for this sort of prosecution. That's a contested issue, but it certainly is the case that it would, it would be unusual to do this. And when the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was passed, it would have been especially unusual and maybe almost unthinkable to bring criminal cases against foreign sovereigns. And then the really hard question is, well, if that's true, that it would have been almost unthinkable in 1976, how, what does that do to our reading of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act? Because mm -hmm. it's really not clear in the statute how it relates to criminal cases. I can talk to you about exactly what the, those arguments are, but I think it's fair to say it's not clear from the statute how the sta that statute relates to criminal cases. Well, tell me if you agree with this, Kurt, but it seemed like the justices were sort of almost less focused on the legal 
technicalities in the case and more so on what the implications would be. And so on this point, um, one of the major concerns for the justices, to me at least, seemed to be that if this uh, law doesn't apply to criminal prosecutions, that is, if it doesn't allow for immunity for instrumentalities from criminal prosecution, that it could sort of green light or open the floodgates for state and local governments to bring criminal cases against foreign entities, which of course we have not seen. So could you just explain for our listeners a little bit about how that would work, why that would be the case? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would say it's that there are policy worries on both sides of the case. And so I'll describe, I think, what they were. And I think you're absolutely right that in the oral argument, the justices expressed not only questions about the statute, but about how this would work in practice. Um, you know, the briefs, I think, did not do a good job of um, talking about, for example, what would happen in state courts if there were no statutory immunity. And it's not just a hypothetical, by the way. Um, some states have already tried to civilly go after China and its instrumentalities for the pandemic. And because everyone agrees, though, that the FSIA statute applies to civil proceedings, those cases have been blocked by the statute. So the question is, does the FSIA also apply to criminal proceedings? If it does not, it, then that conclusion might greenlight cases against China or other countries or their instrumentalities in state courts. Why that would be a concern? One is there's no federal government control, at least directly, over state prosecutors. So you could imagine all sorts of foreign relations difficulties and friction with other countries where the government at least doesn't have direct control, at least for federal prosecutions, there's a federal prosecutor that's part of the executive branch and they hopefully would take account of concerns about our relationships with other countries. And a number of justices asked that if the FSI doesn't apply to criminal cases, does this mean states can just prosecute foreign sovereigns? This would not be an acceptable outcome from the federal government's perspective. So the lawyer for the government tried to come up with arguments about why those somehow might be stopped without a statute in place. I didn't think those answers were entirely persuasive. So I think that's a real concern. And I do think that concern could be avoided if you read the statute as applying to criminal cases, because the statute expressly says it also applies in state courts. So that statute already gives you the tool of stopping state courts from doing this thing that I think would be worrisome. If you don't use the statute, you would really have to have some judicial doctrines developed to try to limit state court activity. And I think that's kind of a can of worms that some of the justices are probably worried about. Now, to be fair to the other side, uh, there were also questions that if you do read the statute to cover criminal cases, are you hamstringing the federal government in its uh, need perhaps to go after money laundering, for example, allegedly in this case? Uh, this case, by the way, Hulk Bank is alleged to have helped uh, Iran effectively launder billions of dollars and deceive federal regulators in the process. Do we really want to read the statute to hamstring federal prosecutors from maybe using criminal tools where they're necessary? And I think some justices are worried about that as well. You know, obviously one possible answer to that is that the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was written before this became perhaps a need by the federal government to do this. And maybe the statute needs to be updated by Congress. But whether the justices are willing to wait for Congress to do that, I think is uncertain. 
So we've been really getting into the weeds of this case, talking about the nitty gritties of the FSIA. Um, Wondering if you can sort of take a step back for us, talk to us about the ramifications of this case, not just with regard to the specific case and our relationships with Turkey, but also beyond and other potential criminal prosecutions that could occur in the future. Yes, and I'm sure the justices are thinking about this because some of them did ask about implications beyond uh, this particular case. Um, I see, you know, I was trying to think about what the options are for the justices for resolving the case. This was not an oral argument, in my opinion, where it's easy to kind of discern how they're going to come out. And, you know, which option they choose, I think, will present different possibilities for the future. Um, If they just apply the statute clear on its face, it covers criminal and civil matters just as a matter of plain meaning, that means Hulkbake wins. That means uh, the government right now cannot go after uh, foreign government entities. And maybe it'll go to Congress and see, seek some kind of a change to the statute to allow it to do that. My, and by the way, maybe Congress would be quite sympathetic to that for money laundering and other kinds of sorts of concerns we might have. So if the court is really strict about the statute, I think it might lead to legislative change. Um, and who knows what that looks like. Another possibility we haven't talked about is they could kind of compromise. There were some questions about this, like, uh, there will be immunity in criminal cases, but not for commercial kinds of activities. There's a way of reading the statute to do that. So the government can still go after banks and other entities that are kind of engaged in business, but maybe not other sovereign kinds of entities. And that might be a, a kind of a workable middle ground that might not raise too many problems. And the government's lawyer, interestingly, said that wasn't their preferred approach, but they could live with it. And that's sort of what the lower court did in this case. I think that one doesn't pose too many problems. I think the bigger uncertainties come if the court says we don't have a statute, that the FSI was just never written to address this, we're completely in the land of some kind of common law. And then I think we have real questions about, for example, does the executive branch just have the power to decide the common law? By the way, before 1976, the Supreme Court itself let the executive branch basically decide immunity. Uh, So it really wasn't judicially determined. Will the Supreme Court let the executive control it going forward? There were lots of arguments on both sides of that question. I don't know what the court will want to say about that. Um, If they don't let the executive decide it, somebody, probably on remand, has got to start working out some standards. I think this will cause concerns abroad that um, foreign governments uh, will be concerned, that they might all of a sudden be exposed to possible criminal action. And I think the biggest worry, which we've mentioned already today, is what happens in the states. I think you like implicitly got into this, Kurt. I was uh, sort of interested in Justice Kavanaugh's suggestion that the executives really got the, the authority over national security. That's not our area of expertise, and we don't get we don't want to get involved. And my, my uh, kind of the question is whether it seemed like that was a uh, prevailing view on the court and where that logic would would lead. Yeah, I, I did think about that. I was surprised um, that the government lawyer didn't push that harder. They the government does have some precedent on their side, as I've mentioned before 1976. Even the Supreme Court, as well as the lower courts, did say that the executive could decide these immunity questions in the absence of a statute. 
kind of as part of the executive's power to manage foreign relations and decide uh, how to recognize foreign sovereigns and the like. And uh, if the Congress didn't regulate any of that in 1976, I thought the government would have a good argument that Congress has kind of acquiesced and accepted for now the executive's role. And allowing it that power would have the nice advantage of potentially allowing it to stop problematic state cases uh, because it could simply intervene and file a suggestion of immunity. And the government lawyer mentioned that briefly, but I think my sense was that the government lawyer is worried about the separation of powers concerns associated with giving the executive branch the authority to intervene in select cases and turn on or off immunity, particularly in the criminal realm. It may just seem particularly problematic to some justices that the executive gets to both be the prosecutor and the one that gets to decide whether the defendant has a defense. There's something peculiar about that position uh, that I think the government was worried about. And although Justice Kavanaugh, I think, did suggest he would be okay with the government continuing to have this kind of um, power to decide immunity questions in the absence of a statute, it wasn't clear to me or I think to the government lawyer, that that would necessarily command a majority view at the moment. And mm -hmm. so he fell back on arguments that I thought were not very good. Like he said, well, maybe we could just make an agreement, like a treaty, with the other state and somehow use that to stop a state case. But that seemed to me to be a very uh, weak response. Imagine states are going after China for COVID. We now have to negotiate with China over some kind of settlement of that. This seems politically and legally fraught. <laughs> if that's the only solution to the problem of state prosecutions, it doesn't seem like much of a solution to me. But I thought uh, he was backing away from the executive power arguments out of a worry that some justices would resist it. And um, if we don't have executive control, though, I do think we're going to have a lot of years of litigation in which courts are going to try to have to protect these, these countervailing interests unless Congress uh, comes and amends the statute. Well, that was a really interesting interview that gave me a little clarity or lack of clarity, probably just provided some support for my lack of clarity coming out of the arguments that I wasn't alone in thinking and kind of scratching my head on where they're going to go. But um, I noted that uh, you sort of used the journalistic term for that in your headline. You said that they're mixed reviews. You know, mixed means who the hell knows what they're going to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> the... <laughs> You certainly got the impression from talking to to Kurt um, that there were going to be significant implications either way, and the justices are going to be have to be very concerned about where the decision will lead, no matter what they do. So I suspect this will be a case we probably won't hear about for a little while as the justices sort of try to sort through that. Yeah, well, that's sort of the, the, the standard fare for any case at this point, right? They hear arguments, and then we don't <laughs> hear anything for months and months. Apparently. All right. The justices will issue their regular orders list on Monday at 9.30 Eastern time. They're also scheduled to be on the bench for a non-argument session, meaning it's their next chance to finally issue that first opinion of the term. After that, they go on recess for a month, returning February 21st for a sitting that includes a couple of major challenges to Biden administration policies and a major case that could reshape the liability of social media companies. So we're going to take a page from the justices and take a little break here on cases and controversies, unless, of course, we get some major news from the Supreme Court. But until then, you can always follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. 
Have you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe over at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now. And we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. You can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.